0: by Rabbi Walfish. The two chapters of our parasha divide neatly into two separate topics, the blessings and curses of chapter 26, and the laws of vows and consecrations of chapter 27. The first of these topics would seem, upon cursory reading, to provide a fitting conclusion to the book of Vaikra, and indeed the concluding pasuk of the chapter could readily serve as a summary of the book. These are the statutes and the ordinances and teachings which Hashem gave between him and the Israelites at Mount Sinai by the hand of Moshe. It is puzzling that the Torah does not conclude Vayikra with this chapter, but instead chooses to tack on a chapter dealing with a topic which has no clear connection to its immediate context and appears to be a kind of P.S., providing a rather anticlimactic finale to the book. Let's put this question on hold for the time being and prepare ourselves to grapple with it by examining a different question. The Torah remarks at the height of a tochacha, Then shall the land repay its Shabbatot, all the days of its desolation, while you are in the land of your enemies. Then shall the land rest and repay its Shabbatot. During all the days of its desolation it shall rest, all that it did not rest during your Shabbatot when you dwelt upon it. The striking anthropomorphic image of the land as owing sabbatical years which it needs to repay by means of kalut is as surprising in its theological explanation of the Galut as in its personification of the land of Israel. Nothing in the opening sequence of the Tochacha would seem to have prepared us for this single-minded focus on the violation of Shemitah as the underlying rationale for the curses and punishments suffered by Israel in this chapter. Rather, the Torah has explained that the Tochacha results from Israel's wholesale and thoroughgoing rejection of all of Hashem's commandments. But if you do not hearken unto me, and do not do all these commandments, and if you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhor my ordinances, so that you do not do all my commandments, but abrogate my covenant. If indeed the curses of our chapter result from rejection of all the commandments and abrogation of the covenant, why does the Torah in Psukim 34-35 fasten upon Shmita as the focal point of the Torah To paraphrase Rashi's famous question from the beginning of Parashat Behar, what is Shemitah doing in the context of the Tochachah? Examination will reveal that the Torah's emphasis on the centrality of Shemitah and the Tochachah is not an arbitrary or isolated phenomenon. The Torah has carefully, if subtly, prepared us for this idea by the way in which it presents the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel in Parashat Bihar. Let us examine the concluding psukim of the Torah's presentation of Shemitah and Yovel and compare them to the blessings which open Parashat Pachotai. The passage in Bihar establishes clearly that Shemitah is a mitzvah unique both in its demand and in its promise, the demand that an entire society abandon their agricultural livelihood for an entire year, and when shmita and Yobel come back to back for two successive years in the 49th and 50th years, presents a unique challenge to the halachic man of faith, and the Torah responds by proclaiming a unique promise. Hashem will ensure that all those who observe Shemitah and Yobel will not go hungry, Observance of Shemitah carries with it an iron-clad guarantee of divine blessing. The divine blessing of the pre shmita year is similar to the divine blessing promised in Chukotay to those who observe the commandments, overabundant yields of crops, which ensure continuity between the lengthy consumption of old produce and the arrival of new produce. Furthermore, the passage in Behar opens with an admonition to do and observe statutes and ordinances, Chukim and Mishpatim, phrased in generic terms. Regardless of whether we understand chukim and mishpatim in this pasuk in a restrictive context-bound sense, referring to Shemitah alone, or see Shemitah as instances of chukim and mishpatim, it seems clear that the Torah views Shemitah and as somehow representing or summing up the totality of mitzvot. Paradoxically, the Torah declares, "...our secure dwelling in the land is guaranteed not by intensive economic activity, but rather by refraining, at Hashem's behest, from exploitation of the land." Why has the Torah singled out Shemitah and Yovel in this way? I believe that the answer resides in the Torah's conceptual summary of the laws of Shemitah and Yovel. In the verse, And the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, because mine is the land, for aliens and settlers, Gerim mitoshavim, are you with me? Two conclusions emerge from the Torah's characterization of the Jewish people as Gerim mitoshavim on Hashem's land. First, our right to exploit and dispose of the land is restricted. Inasmuch as we are not the full owners, but rather tenants on land whose title is retained by Hashem, the laws of Shemitah and Yovel express these limitations in the fullest and most dramatic fashion. And second, our very presence on the land is contingent upon our fulfilling the conditions of our lease, namely the mitzvot which Hashem has commanded us. Hence, the ultimate punishment for violation of the mitzvot is exile, leaving the land desolate. Thus, Behar and B'chukotai embody two different ramifications of the idea that Israel are gerim b'toshavim on Hashem's land. If we examine the matter in greater depth, we can arrive at a fuller understanding of the blessings and curses, as well as the centrality of Shemitah and The Torah's depiction of a mitzvot connected with the Shemitah year presents a further, very interesting parallel to the Brachot, as well as to the Klalot. We read in Behar, And for your animals and for wild beasts in your land, and all the produce shall be for them to eat. Whereas we read in B'chukotai, And I shall abolish evil wild beasts from the land, and later, And I shall send upon you wild beasts of the field, and shall bereave you. Just as the Torah taught us that, paradoxically, we must refrain from exploitation of the land in order to secure our hold upon it, so here the Torah teaches us an equally paradoxical lesson. In order to free our land from the danger of wild beasts, we must refrain every seventh year from closing our fields to domestic animals and wild beasts. The Torah's perception is that man may achieve completely harmonious relations with his environment, as described in detail in the brachot of Puchotai, and I will give peace in the land, refers both to the absence of human enemies and to the banishing of evil wild beasts. In the brachot of Hukotai, the land, vegetation, wild beasts, and human society are all at peace within the land of Israel. The Edenesque ambiance of the brachot, in which man lives in harmony with his environment, is reinforced by a literary illusion. And I will walk, v'hitalechti, among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. The verb hitalech, meaning walking here and there without a specific destination, lingering here and there in order to examine things encountered along the way, is normally used by the Torah to refer to how man acts out his relationship with Hashem. Only in Eden has the Torah applied this verb to divine activity, expressing the intimacy of Hashem's relations with man. The complete harmony between Israel and their environment in the Holy Land culminates in a harmonious relationship between Israel and Hashem. Hashem can mitalech only in a setting in which man and his environment are at peace, just as Adam in primeval Eden lived at peace with the land, as well as with its flora and fauna. The harmony promised by Bechukotai between man, his environment, and Hashem is bestowed by divine blessing upon the people, which have carried out the divine precepts. Of these precepts, the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel exemplify the harmony between man and environment, which is promised in the Brachot. In the Shmita year, man allows the earth to rest, and the land shall keep a Shabbat for Hashem, refraining from working the land and exploiting its produce. All men and beasts are afforded equal access to the free-growing Shemitah produce, in the Ovel year, all land is returned to its rightful possessor, and all possessors return to their land and family. Because we recognize, just as Adam did in Eden, that we are not truly landowners, but only custodians of land belonging to Hashem. The Shmita is also called Shabbat for Hashem, because the Shemitah, harmony between man, land, and his fellow creatures, is rooted in the same premise. The land is Hashem's, and he periodically requires us to surrender our custodial rights and express his sovereignty by effacing the barriers which symbolize our human control over the land. Shemitah and Yovel periodically recreate within the land of Israel an Edenesque relationship between man, his environment, and Hashem. This periodic return to Eden ensures the reception of an Edenesque blessing from Hashem who guarantees that man will constantly enjoy harmonious relations with his environment and that he will mitalech among us. More than any other mitzvot, these two mitzvot demand of man the fullest recognition and expression of the Divine Sovereignty, which is the source of all the mitzvot, as well as the brachot which Hashem has promised. Transgressing these two mitzvot is a double failure, a failure to recognize the true nature of his relationship with Hashem, as well as a failure to understand the relationship with his environment which is thereby implied. Hashem will punish Israel for their failure to relinquish control by releasing the forces of the environment from human domination. First, human enemies, then crop failures, then wild beasts, and finally the land itself will exact payment from Israel for failing to live in proper harmony with their environment. The Torah personifies the land. Israel must allow it to observe a Shabbat for Hashem, or else it will exact repayment by lying desolate while Israel is scattered among the nations. This personification gives powerful expression to the idea that the Torah is trying to convey. Man is not master of his environment. As custodian of God's land, he needs to maintain a dialectical relationship with his environment, of control and surrender, acted out in the rhythm of six work years and one shmita, seven shmitot and one Yovel. The closing pasuk of the Brachot Uklalot clearly indicates both their profound relationship to Parshat Behar and the role that parshiot Behar and Chukotai play in the Book of Aikra as a whole. These are the statutes and the ordinances and the instructions which Hashem gave between him and the Israelites at Mount Sinai by the hand of Moshe. The mention of Sinai is puzzling, inasmuch as the Book of Vayikra opens in Ohel Moed, where all the commandments of Vayikra were given. However, Parashat Behar opens with the same formula. Hashem spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai, saying, Clearly the Parshiot of Behar and Hukutai form one unit, located by the Torah on Mount Sinai in order to indicate that the Mitzvot of Bihar and the covenantal conditions of the Chukotai form the conclusion of the Sinaitic Covenant. Here we return to the opening remarks of the Shiur. After this powerful concluding portion of the Sinaitic Covenant, why does the Torah tack on a group of laws dealing with vows and consecrations, concluding once again with a closing summation, These are the mitzvot which Hashem commanded Moshe to convey to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. The repeated mention of Mount Sinai in this pasuk indicates that chapter 27 is connected to chapters 25 and 26. A further connection of this chapter to chapters 25 and 26 is the repeated reference to Yovel. And indeed, the Bible scholar Moshe Tzvi Segal suggested that chapter 27 serves as a kind of appendix to the laws of Yovel, redemption of objects, persons, or land which have been consecrated rather than sold to a person. Other scholars have suggested explanations of the location of our chapter within the context of Vayikra as a whole, rather than the context of chapters 25 and 26. Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch suggests that the optional mitzvot of chapter 27 serve as a fitting supplement to the mandatory mitzvot of the rest of the book. In a similar vein, some contemporary scholars have suggested that the theme of chapter 27 is the ability of man to create new obligations— supplementing the divinely ordained mitzvot of Vayikra with the humanly created mitzvot listed in the chapter. A brief comment by Rav David Zvi Hoffman points to a way of understanding the placement of our chapter, which will account both for its relationship to chapters 25 and 26, and for its relationship to the Book of Vaikra as a whole. Rav Hoffman suggests that our chapter comes as a supplement to the statutes of holiness. Laws were given regarding people and things which were consecrated to the Temple. We may note that the statutes of holiness Begin in chapter 19, and culminate in Parashat Bihar, in which the holiness of the Israelite person is integrated with the holiness of space, the land of Israel, and of time, Shemitah and Yovel. Consecration to the temple, on the other hand, harks back to the opening section of Aikra, which discusses the sacrificial service in the sanctuary. Chapter 27 concludes the book of Aikra by weaving together the two main themes of the book. First, the sanctity derived from the indwelling divine presence symbolized and embodied by the sanctuary, and second, the sanctity of the Israelite individual and community, embodied in all walks of life, but achieving its chief expression in the way in which Israel realizes the sanctities of space and time. In chapter 27, the Israelite expresses his sanctity by consecrating his person, other persons, animals, objects, or land to the sanctuary. The forms that this humanly created sanctity takes as well as the relationship of this sanctity to the sanctity of the Yovel year, round out the Book of Ayikram by showing the highest form of interaction between the sanctity of persons and the sanctity of the indwelling Divine Presence in the sanctuary.